Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West. It is estimated that ocean plastics will outweigh ocean fish by 2050, according to a study by the World Economic Forum. There are at least 5.25 trillion plastic pieces floating in the oceans right now. It's not simply the physical presence of plastic inside of an animal, be it a fish through to a whale to a bird, doesn't matter. In addition to that, attached to the surface is the plastic, almost like a magnet or a sponge, the, the plastic sucks up all these contaminants onto its surface at really high concentrations. It happens really quickly when the plastic is floating in the ocean. And then when a bird or a whale ingests that plastic, their digestive enzymes in their stomach, those juices that are meant to digest things, release all those toxins out into their bloodstream. And there's been a range of studies now, both controlled experimental studies and also wild studies are both telling the same story. That story is the more plastic you eat, the more chemicals you have in your bloodstream. Dr. Jennifer Lavers is a research scientist at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. She is a marine ecotoxicologist with expertise in tropical and temperate seabird ecology, plastic pollution, invasive species management and fisheries bycatch. Her research examines how marine apex predators, such as seabirds, act as sentinels of ocean health and focuses on pollutants of aquatic ecosystems such as plastic, heavy metals, persistent organic pollutants and radionuclides. She is also very interested in science and conservation outreach. Jennifer also has an Erdosh Bacon number as she is a star of the stage and screen as well as of academia. You may not have heard of this before, but we'll get to it at the end of the episode. I chatted to Jennifer about her work, starting with her work about a South Pacific island literally thousands of kilometres from the nearest humans, which is covered in rubbish. Indeed. Um, I've been really fortunate in my career over the past 10 or 15 years to get to travel to some of the world's remotest uninhabited islands. And so I went to Henderson very much with my eyes open, um, having experienced rubbish on beaches in far-flung corners of the planet previously. So Henderson has this really interesting case of being really unique and yet in the same breath, not unique. So it's unique in the sense that I went to great lengths to quantify it and to bring it to the public's attention Um, And also the fact that the quantity of the debris there is phenomenal. So it was indeed the worst that I'd ever seen. But in the same tone, it's it's not unique in that there are other islands just like Henderson. There are other Hendersons, in essence, um, called by other names in other corners of the world that are suffering very similar things. And the only real difference there is that perhaps it's not quite as bad you know there's not as much plastic but if you went to that beach you would still be shocked and the only other major difference is that those islands haven't been quantified yet so the public doesn't know about it and that's been the driving force of kind of my last 24 months since coming back to Henderson is now that the world knows about Henderson let's shine a light on some of these other islands so that the global awareness is not so focused simply on Henderson, but on the fact that this is a widespread international issue. 
So there's something like, or you estimate there might be 37 million pieces of plastic, three and a half thousand pieces of plastic washing up every day on Henderson Island. That's an incredible amount of Indeed. plastic for for somewhere that's there are no humans actively dumping it on the on the beach. It's it's all going into the ocean somewhere else in the world. How how does it wash up in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? That's right. So Henderson has never been inhabited by humans, and, and thankfully still isn't. Um, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Area, and it's the island itself is contained within one of the largest marine park areas (MPAs) in in the world, um, and Despite all of this protection that we have kind of afforded to the island, it's quite clear that those protections, all of that policy and and management does absolutely nothing when it comes to oceanic plastics. And those plastics are being distributed by global currents, small and large, who have no respect for for any man-made boundaries. You know, um, one person's rubbish dumped in a river or on a beach in one country that makes its way out into the ocean, washes up on another country's backyard. So we are each other's backyard and each other's neighbor. And anything I release becomes someone else's problem and vice versa. And the very conservative global estimate is somewhere in the range of 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic are already floating in the world's oceans. And these are just kind of going around there in all those ocean currents, washing up on one beach, going back out on the next tide, flowing out onto the next beach on the next island and sloshing around out there because the longevity of plastic, it essentially never breaks down. It only ever breaks up into smaller and smaller pieces. So the plastic that's out there is out there virtually forever. It's 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 interesting you say that. I've been looking at what you can do to recycle swimming caps and basically you know what I found is that latex does not break down and if you look on the web about balloons lots of companies are saying oh yeah you know they're natural they come from latex so therefore they break down but they just don't break down they just get smaller and smaller. I'm so glad you brought that up that is that is um, a favorite line by the balloon industry that latex is a natural material therefore it's harmless and it, it biodegrades and it breaks up and it's it breaks up equivalent to the rate of, a, of an oak leaf and all of these kind of um, very cliche things that keep getting regurgitated and cycled over and over again through various media. And none of it is true. And my response to that is, okay, so you're correct. Latex and rubber and various things do come from, for example, rubber comes from a rubber tree. And so therefore it is in, in essence uh, a natural material but one could say the same thing about arsenic, lead, mercury, cadmium. These are natural-based materials that come from the planet. But simply because it's natural doesn't mean it's harmless, doesn't mean it goes away, doesn't mean it's break, it breaks down. Nature, too, creates things that are not harmless and do not break down. And so we should not treat everything as if it is so-called disposable and there is this place called away because away doesn't exist and I assure you latex does not break down it only breaks up uh just uh, yeah I've been running some home experiments trying to get them degrading in compost and bukashi bins and things I'm pretty sure they're going to outlast the pyramids <laughs> some of the things that I've got trying indeed to... and so for the sake of a graduation ceremony a birthday party a funeral whatever the event is for the sake of uh, perhaps one minute or five minutes worth of celebration of watching balloons go up into the air, which is essentially aerial littering because what goes up must come down. 
you know, for the sake of that five or 10 minutes of clapping and celebration, we litter the earth and put wildlife in harm's way for using a material that essentially will only break down. It won't break up and it will potentially last. Yeah. Like you say, longer than the pyramids or whatever, you know, kind of analogy we, we choose to use that the fact is it will last an incredibly long period of time and put a diversity of species and habitats at risk along the way. And so we use quotes like blow bubbles, not balloons, or use paper ribbons or cloth bunting or something like that. Find some other way of commemorating your event. You can cheer and clap at a lot of things. It doesn't have to kill the planet. On the amount of plastic in the ocean, I guess you can make estimates, but I guess you can never really be too sure because there's an awful lot of what's known as microplastic, which how, how do you even detect microplastics? So plastics that are so, you know, less than a centimetre, is that the definition? I'm not sure what the definition is. The definition used to be a little bit more variable than it is now. There's starting to be some scientific consensus. So it's usually a microplastic is somewhere between one and five millimetres. So half of a centimeter and smaller. And once you get below one millimeter, you start to get into nanoplastics. But there are other subcategories. You can have a small micro and a large micro and all these things that we don't need to go into detail. Um, but you're basically dealing with something that is approximately half of a centimeter or slightly smaller. And the global statistic is that about 90% of the plastics in the ocean are in this micro form. So I, when I go around and I talk with people about this, whether it's a sailing group or a school group, and often I get the question, well, you know, I'm a sailor or I go out fishing and, and I look at the ocean and I never see these plastics. I don't know what these scientists are talking about. You know, it's not that bad. And I say, well, I can guarantee you it's there. You just have to hang your head almost completely over the side of the ship and stare blankly at the surface of the ocean to see it because when you're talking about pieces that are one to five millimeters or even smaller, and they are most commonly white and blue plastic, which blends with the color of the ocean and the color of the, the surf, the, the waves and, and the froth, you very readily don't see it. And so you have to look incredibly hard. But the analogy I like to use there is just because you can't see it doesn't mean, mean it's not harmful. Think about CO2, think about climate change. You can't see CO2, but it's dangerous. And so the plastic is there. It is abundant. Um, You just have to look really hard to find it. And the worrying thing about the really tiny stuff is that essentially opens the floodgates. So when you have it in micro and even nano form, that means things like corals, sea cucumbers, small fish, mussels, clams, oysters, all of those animals, particularly filter feeders, now can intake this plastic into their bodies, into their systems. When plastic was only big pieces floating in the ocean, it was only whales and sharks and maybe a large bird. But now that it's breaking up into small pieces and we are manufacturing it in smaller and smaller forms, we're creating more problems for more species. So does that mean if you go swimming, you're well, you're swimming in microplastics, probably drinking a little bit of, from time to time as well, I guess? Yeah, I mean, depending on where you are in the world, that is undoubtedly the risk 
um, well, it's a risk in a sense. It, undoubtedly, that's something that you are you doing. You're bathing yourself in, in small microplastics, and and so long as you don't kind of take them in in large quantities or anything like that, it's it's probably relatively harmless. Um, of course, it's the marine life that's kind of living in that habitat, you know, 365 days a year, and filter feeding from from the ocean that is at the greatest risk right now and, and some of those risks we do understand and some of those risks we still as scientists are still grappling with and trying to quantify so we don't fully understand how widespread it is and how serious the problem is for some species and so you know kind of stay tuned and and hopefully in, in the next couple of years we'll have a better understanding of some of the really complex uh, side effects of, of exposure to these things. I guess that's the interesting thing. Like it's easy to picture how a balloon is dangerous to a bird and we've all seen images of, of plastic bags killing bird life or, or, you know, whales or mammals or whatnot. But it's hard. It's harder to picture what might happen when they're continually eating tiny little bits of plastic. And I guess the plastic itself is really bad for the bird in terms of choking or filling up the gut, making it heavier and all the effects that that might have. But also, the chemicals that are on the plastic that are that have come from the manufacturing process, we don't know what that does to a, to an animal, do we? We do have some understanding for some species, and it's not such a big leap to kind of take the knowledge that we have for those species and apply it to others. Um, and so, I always say to people that the really interesting thing is, you know, if you look at what you as an individual know about the impacts of plastic in the ocean, you know, birds with cigarette lighters in their stomachs, whales with plastic bags, whatever it is that you've seen in the media, it can be quite graphic. It, the media tends to show the stuff that's really visual that you can see with the naked eye, plastic bags, rope entanglements, those kinds of really graphic things. And all I can really say is that the graphic stuff uh, the entanglements, the ingestions of, of big items like cigarette lighters and toothbrushes, those are literally the tip of the iceberg. The the stuff that is really difficult to visually see, the microplastics, the nanoplastics, and those things are difficult to therefore quantify because visually, we, we as humans are visual people. So when you take away that visual aspect, it makes it so much harder as a scientist to go, okay, right, what is actually going on here? When you're talking about impacts at, for example, the cellular level, you know, as scientists, we have to get much more creative in how we figure out what's going on at the cellular level when you can't actually see what's happening. And so that's where we start to not fully understand all of the underlying mechanisms. But so... The, the kind of the two take-home messages are is that one is the big stuff that you see in the news, the graphic impacts are the tip of the iceberg. So whether you think it's it's bad or it's not bad, just know that what you're seeing is is just a tiny portion of what's actually happening out there in the big blue. And the other part is that you're dead right. The the teeny tiny, well, even the big stuff and all the way down to the little tiny stuff, it's not simply the physical presence of plastic inside of an animal, be it a fish through to a whale to a bird, doesn't matter. The plastic physically being in the stomach is one problem. But in addition to that, attached to the surface of the plastic, almost like a magnet or a sponge, the, the plastic sucks up all these contaminants onto its surface at really high concentrations. And it happens really quickly when the plastic is floating in the ocean. It 
It takes all those chemicals that we put out there, pesticides and agricultural runoff and burning of fossil fuels and everything that makes it out into the ocean. It's all diluted in the ocean, but the plastic, it's like a little concentrator and it sucks it all up. And then when a bird or a whale ingests that plastic, their digestive enzymes in their stomach, those juices that are meant to digest things, release all those toxins out into their bloodstream. And there's been a range of studies now, both controlled experimental studies in the lab where we have control of the situation. We know exactly how much of a pollutant and how much plastic a particular animal has been fed. And also wild studies where we look at wildlife unmanipulated in the field are both telling the same story. That story is the more plastic you eat, the more chemicals you have in your bloodstream. That, that much we can say for, for a diversity of species now. And then this goes up the food chain. If we bring it back to, to humans, eventually humans are eating fish and, and seabirds are eating fish. So this accumulates up the food chain, eventually reaching us. Indeed. So a lot of the chemicals that are associated with plastics and have been found in, in these studies are, are chemicals that we know biomagnify in food webs. And they're also chemicals that are what we call lipophilic. So they like fatty tissue. They like um, some of the animals that we like to eat. Um, if you're an indigenous person and you like to eat seals or whales or something like that, they tend to be chemicals that really attach into fatty tissues. We as a human society tend to be, sorry, a little bit on the fattier end of the spectrum. So these chemicals also really like to to cling on to our tissues and hang around. So we are definitely, as a society, kind of moving in a direction where perhaps putting ourselves at increased risk of holding on to these chemicals once we've been exposed. And we know now that uh, uh, probably conservatively, uh, 25% of the world's marine fish species are already consuming plastic. And I've had some interesting conversations over the years with recreational and also commercial fishermen, and they say, well, you know, I would never eat the fish's stomach. So I'm obviously not eating the plastic myself. This is silly. You know, like, why are we even talking about this? I would never be exposed to plastic via the fish I catch because I don't eat the fish's stomach where the plastic is contained. And that's where I have to kind of get them to pause for a moment. And I say, well, I agree with you. You're not physically eating the fish's stomach and you're not physically eating the plastic that the fish ate. But because the fish's digestive enzymes have been working on that plastic, those chemicals are already released and out in the fish's bloodstream and in its muscle tissue and in, in all of its various blood and, and tissues and organs. And so if you as the human come along and harvest that fish and you eat the flesh, then you're not exposed to the plastic itself. You're exposed to the chemicals that were once associated with the plastic that the fish ate. And when we have that conversation, there's often some kind of light bulb moments. I see, you know, kind of this look in people's eyes where you see, you know, ding, 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 the connection is made. And, and that's a really important connection because I think connecting people with their food, where it comes from and, and those kinds of things is, is part of putting this, this puzzle together because, you know, for some people, turtles and birds aren't their thing. That's not what motivates them to make decisions changes and decisions in their day-to-day -day lives but what you bring home to the dinner table for yourself and your family that motivates almost every single one of us and so we need to make sure that that connection that people understand where and when they and their family is at risk because that hopefully will bring about the widespread change that we need.
I was interested reading one of your papers, thinking about this idea of the, the fish's stomach absorbing chemicals that are on the plastic. It was imagining organic compounds and maybe the fish's body can do something about them to some degree, but they can't do anything about heavy metals and trace metals. I didn't think of metals as being involved in the plastic process or being absorbed onto the, onto the plastic. There's nothing really a fish or a human can do about metals, is there, except excrete it somehow. Well, I mean, even with some of the, the organic pollutants, things like DDT, PCBs, um, what we call PBDEs, I'm sorry for all the acronyms, PBDEs yeah. are things like flame retardants, which are often put into electronics so that, you know, when you have a computer, it doesn't spontaneously combust. Um, heavy metals, uh, a range of metals are often used uh, as various types of additives, either to add color. So once, once upon a time in the past, I, I hope it's not used anymore, um, the color uh, uh, arsenic used to be used to, to add the color green. Um, even today, titanium is sometimes used to add the color white, uh, various things like that. Uh, and of course, we have been uh, burning off these metals in various fossil fuels and various other industries and putting it up into the atmosphere. And, and again, what goes up must come down. So what we've burned up into the atmosphere precipitates and falls down either onto land or in the ocean. And so these, these metals are out there in the ocean and they also can adhere to the surface of the plastic. So whether the metals are compounded into the plastic at the time of manufacture or they're sucked onto the surface, um, the, the wildlife is likely getting exposed to a combination of both. And so it's both metals and organic pollutants like DDT and PCBs. It's a whole suite of chemicals that, that the wildlife is exposed to all at the same time. I've seen various estimates that if not now, but very soon there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than biomass, order, orders of magnitude about, about the same, which is incredible. Yeah, so some of the global statistics are just this year, there's been a couple of really interesting papers come out in, a couple, in some very high profile scientific journals looking at trying to grapple with how much is actually being produced, consumed and released globally. And that is incredibly hard to do. You know, there's so much variation from one city to the next and how they manage their waste. And it's a big ask to throw that question at scientists and say, right, what are the global consumption patterns and what is waste management actually doing or not doing well? And what countries are kind of the biggest top offenders, if you want to use that word. I'm not sure I really feel comfortable with that word, but um, and so, but there have been a couple of papers that have come out that have tried to put some some numbers to this, some some ballpark figures, um, and the numbers are staggering. It's somewhere around plus or minus four million metric tons of plastic enter the oceans from rivers alone every year so that's not litter on beaches that's not dumping either legally or illegally at sea that's just rivers and odds are that's extremely conservative as well so you know whether we hit that you know more plastic than fish in the sea by mass by 2050 which is the current prediction or it's 2055 or 2045 
I don't know what that exact year will be. And, you know, whether it's 4 million metric tons per year from rivers or 5 million, and whether it's 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic already floating in the ocean or 6 trillion or 10 trillion, I don't know. In some sense, I think the world needs to focus on the fact that these exact numbers don't matter. What matters is the trajectory that we're on is perfectly clear. And what we need to do to stop it is also perfectly clear. And the other key thing is we are doing none of these things right now. We are, we are grappling immensely. We are spending years, months, sometimes even decades fighting for things like container bottle legislation and plastic bag bans. Together, these things account for probably 0.1% of the total plastic generation. Now, I don't want that statistic to be used in any way to stop these things from happening. I think container bottle legislation, plastic bag bans, microbead bans, all of these things are absolutely necessary. But to use that term again, these are the tip of the iceberg. It shouldn't take us a decade to get there. And as soon as we get there, as soon as one ban is in place, we don't stop. We don't tick that box and go, good job, society. Good on you. That's a win. We go, right. Let's challenge ourselves. What's next? That's the key. It's it, it almost, I don't, know, I don't want to sound too defeatist, but even if we somehow manage to stop pumping out plastic into the environment or into the oceans anytime soon, which sounds like that's not happening anytime soon, there's still an awful lot left. There's going to have to be some radical new technologies to do we need to extract it from the ocean or can we wait for it to settle to the bottom that's going to take thousands of years i'm, I'm feeling a little bit depressed <laughs> well i so so let me try and and kind of i guess my goal is never to leave the people i my goal is always to educate but never to leave people feeling so overwhelmed with the numbers that they feel paralyzed because that's obviously getting us nowhere um and and so i I always say, you know, like I, de I grapple with these numbers day in and day out. This is this is what I face in my job every day. And, and I feel that anxiety like everyone else. I feel that need to throw in the towel and just give up. I see the futility in it some days. But I always say to people, what, what defines us as a society, what defines us as individuals is, to use a military analogy, you know, those we hold nearest and dearest in our society, those we look up to as heroes, as champions, as inspirational, are those who often, when when facing a, a battle, a war that was essentially all but lost, that individual led his team onwards to fight because even though the outcome was all but decided, the principle was just so in the heart of that person that there was no other option but to fight on in that direction. And so that's how I feel. Yes, this is immensely overwhelming. And sometimes it feels like there is no hope, but we have no choice but to fight on. This is what defines us as a society, as a people, is our willingness to go, you know what, this isn't right. And I feel like I'm up against it. I'm up against all odds, but I don't care because this is who I am. And so I encourage everyone to say, you know what, this is who I am. And as tough as it is, I'm willing to make those sacrifices. I'm willing to have those conversations with people who don't even want to talk to me. Let's do this. That is inspirational. So you do an awful lot of outreach work, don't you, as part of the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies, and I guess off your own back as well. You do a lot of outreach work in this area. 
I try. I certainly, within the academic framework in which I, I work within, uh, it's very tricky because I've got a lot of, I have absolutely no free time and, and no work-life balance whatsoever. <laughs> None. Um, you know, I already work 12-hour days, seven days a week, and, and I have no time. Um, but I, I believe in my heart of hearts that we, as scientists, we can't do science and, and create new knowledge and simply go to academic conferences and tell other scientists about the scientists science that we've created and the knowledge that we've gained. We have to translate it into a language that everyone can engage with and be a part of. And so I sometimes I feel like a bit of a black sheep. Sometimes I feel like a lot of a black sheep. And sometimes it really doesn't work in my favor career-wise, but I do my darndest to fight the system and get out there and engage with the people and give them the information that they need to make decisions and to feel hopefully inspired because this is the only way that we move forward together. We have to feel united. The community needs to feel like they can come to the university, to the scientists and say, what is it that I need to know? And the scientists need to know that that is actually part of their role to engage with the community as well. Uh, if we don't have that dialogue, then we can't move together as a united team. And and I think that's especially important in something like this, which will take, it, it is, a, as a society, this is something we need to challenge and to, to stop. It's not, it's not an esoteric science conference topic. This is something that affects everybody. I take some positives out of, I, I feel like, you know, from the war on waste, which was broadcast earlier in the year, I've I've seen a few things, you know, people are buying keep cups and whatnot. I know these are again, these are the point one percent things, but there's an appetite for for change. Trying to capitalize on it is difficult, but at least you're fighting the good fight. Yeah, indeed. There's so many things that we need to do and change and I think the way that scientists and the public communicate or, or don't communicate is certainly somewhere that we can make a lot of progress and, and um all of these these changes and sides, we kind of all need to kind of come together and keep capitalizing on this momentum that is growing, but so much more definitely needs to happen. Again, a lot of these things are, like you said, just the tip of the iceberg. Um, I just, I always say, I just say it time and time again, like within your own individual self and within your home and within your workplace, look for things that you can do and change either at the individual level or, you know, or within your family and then make that part of your everyday repertoire. As soon as that gets comfortable and that becomes habit, you know, like, you know, remembering to take your reusable bags to the grocery store or your keep cup or the thing that I'm trying to get the university to do right now, come on university, we can do this is switch away from ordering plastic highlighters. You can actually buy highlighters that are, completely wood-based and the highlighter is just basically essentially a bright fluorescent yellow pencil insert and it's a tiny little change it costs absolutely nothing but it's just a, it's a change in the ordering and you know if every university did that if every school primary school secondary school did that you know think about how it scales up another one is in Australia alone every year we lose we use approximately 30 million plastic toothbrushes, which our Australian dentists occur, encourage us to throw to that magical place called Away every three to six months and buy a new one. Well, I encourage the dentists of Australia to think twice about this 
and perhaps work with me and work with each other to promote perhaps bamboo toothbrushes. So for the last decade, I've been using a bamboo toothbrush. And when I'm done with it, when I can't use it anymore, the bamboo stick of the actual toothbrush that I hold works perfect as a garden marker. I write tomatoes on it and that's where I know where I grew my tomatoes. And if everyone in Australia did that from this moment onwards, that would be 30 million plastic toothbrushes a year that I wouldn't be finding in the guts of seabirds and washed up on remote island beaches because I assure you I find them in the guts of seabirds and I find them on remote island beaches and I'm sick of it. So don't just stop with keep cups. Don't stop with reusable bags. But as soon as that's part of your repertoire, your habit, and you're feeling on top of the world, right, what's the next challenge? Get behind it. I'm going to go out and buy bamboo toothbrushes today. The problem with recycling, I mean, we've got a service where one of the companies take toothbrushes and um, toothpastes and bathroom products and their name escapes me right at the moment. Which So I've been keeping them to recycle them. But the problem with recycling is, of course, it, it's great if it gets recycled into something useful, but that has an end point. It costs energy. And there's only so many park benches we can make out of recycled plastic, isn't there? It, it, it's much better. Precisely. To, yeah, it's much better to reduce or or change to something like a bamboo, which will biodegrade and then you can use usefully for something else. So I, I agree with you. You've, You've taken me. the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and what what would be? I'm sorry, I've taken up so much of your time. What's what's next in uh, your research? Gosh. Uh, so in April, we're heading back to Lord Howe Island, which is our annual uh, monitoring trip. So uh, we've been monitoring the shearwaters, the seabirds on Lord Howe Island. This will be year 19 on Lord Howe Island. And uh, these shearwaters forage in the Tasman Sea, basically in kind of the Brisbane, Sydney area and offshore of there. And we've been looking at how much plastic the birds eat, what type, what color, what size, what shape, what brands, are they Australian brands, are they international, all of these kinds of things for the last 19 years. And that data set has allowed us to look at whether or not, you know, the amount of plastic in the Tasman Sea is increasing or decreasing and who the major players are. And the great thing with that is, is using the birds as kind of like an indicator species. It means that which is quite funny. As a marine biologist, I don't actually have to go out in the marine environment very often. Not because I don't love the ocean, but because surveying the ocean is incredibly time consuming and expensive, whereas working with the birds is incredibly affordable and quick. So the birds have this really valuable uh, contribution that they make to science. And the data set from Lord Howe Island, 19 years, is the second longest running time series in the world and so it's it's incredibly valuable and it's so important that we go back every year in april and so this is kind of like our annual pilgrimage the research team picks up and off we go to lord howe island so that's um where if anyone's listening is going to lord howe island at the end of april i'll see you there it's tragic in a way that you can monitor the plastic um, content of the tasman by the stomachs of dead birds it's, I mean, it's ingenious, but it's sad, isn't it? It is. It is. And I'm, I'm sad to say that as a result, there's other things at play, of course. You know, the marine ecosystem is very complex and, and animals never face one single pressure at a time. But I can say that plastics is definitely playing a role in what's going on in the Tasman. And, and for this particular species, uh, they are not coping with these pressures they're not coping with the plastic well and they are a declining 
species. So it's increasingly important every year that we go there and and document how they're doing and what's driving their decline and talk with the people the community, talk with the broader public, talk with the media to kind of, my goal is really to make um, the flesh-footed shearwater on Lord Howe Island, a, a species of mutton bird, to make this almost like the poster child of Australia. You know, uh, China has the Japan, uh, has the pan, panda bear, sorry. You know, maybe Australia can be uh, the shearwater. And, and if we can get the shearwater into primary school, if kids learn about it, if parents know about it, if we all kind of know about the plight of Australia's, you know, new iconic seabird. Maybe we can actually turn things around for this bird. Maybe we can um, get things right. Yeah, and undoubtedly that would help turn it around for all other species of coastal birds, I guess, as well. Exactly. So in science, you know, we don't have the time, the money, the facilities to monitor every single species. What we do is we kind of throw ourselves and our resources at a, a few number, a few species, and they act as the indicator species for others. And we implement things like marine protected areas and other types of protection. And we don't just implement it for that one species. We know that by protecting that one species, it acts almost like an umbrella for all the other species that it relies on or that nest near it. And so that would be the exact goal is that we bring this one species on Lord Howe Island to the Australian public's attention. We do something about it. But we don't just do it for this one species, we do it knowing that we're helping so many others. And, and to bring this back to where we started, it's a massive challenge, isn't it? Because even if you could make Lord Howe, and maybe it already is, a, a big protected marine area, you're still going to get rubbish dumped in the ocean off the coast of England. You know, rubbish is still going to flow there. To, to me, you know, the atmosphere, it makes sense that gases mix. I, I don't know that people have that same concept of the ocean. I could be completely wrong, but for me, it's mind-blowing. You know, you hear about the various gyres around the world and where the plastic ends up. It's pretty eye-opening. Yeah, so it, it, you're right. It is interesting that that there is often this kind of lack of understanding of, like, just how connected the world's oceans are and that we are essentially all just one conveyor belt. The other thing that always really blows my mind is, I guess for me, it's really easy to think this because I live and breathe plastics. But for me, it feels like uh, news about plastics, it's on the TV, it's in magazines, newspapers, it's in film. It's, I feel like it's everywhere. But then every now and then, and, and not that uncommonly, I'll bump into someone at a conference or on the street or something and they'll say, you know, plastic what? You know, I had no idea that birds ate plastic. And in the middle of this conversation with this person, I'm thinking, where have you been for the last decade and how did you not know about this? And I have to pause for a moment and think, okay, you know, don't be judgmental. This is, you know, you live and breathe this every day and this person doesn't. And in that moment, I always reflect on myself and I think, okay, as a science communicator, if this person is standing in front of me telling me that they don't know about this problem, I have clearly failed somewhere or we as a society have clearly failed somewhere. Because if, if those of us in the know haven't 
managed to connect with those who don't know, then there's obviously some real room for progress. So the one thing that I always get asked is like, you know, people ask me, what should I do? You know, what's the one or top three things you recommend that I do? And I say, right, you go and find that friend, cousin, neighbor, person who normally wouldn't go and see, for example, an environmental film, someone who's not green motivated or or anything kind of in this spectrum. And you grab them and you turn on Netflix or you buy Plastic Oceans off of iTunes. So the film A Plastic Ocean is on iTunes for a couple of dollars. Or if you're a Netflix subscriber, you can watch it for free. It's called A Plastic Ocean. Or in all of Australia's capital cities right now, the film Blue is screening not at village cinemas, not in the big, big cinemas, but in your smaller cinemas, like in Hobart at the state cinema. Uh, The film Blue is screening for the next couple of weeks. It will basically screen for as long as Australians demand tickets, go see it. But don't just go see it. Bring someone who wouldn't normally go and see a film like that. And in doing so, know that you're reaching someone. You're not preaching to the converted. You're reaching someone who who needs to engage with these issues, who needs to know what's going on. And hopefully they will impart the message on someone else who also doesn't know what's going on. And then maybe there will come a time where I will no longer, as a science communicator, be bumping into people who, who don't know anything about this issue. Blue was on, it, last time I checked, was on in one of the local cinemas around here, so I need to go get it. It's a brilliant film. It's not just about plastics. It's also about shark finning and, and a whole range of other things. It is one of the most stunning films I've ever seen and had the absolute honour and privilege of being a part of. I can't say enough good things about it. Nothing to do with the fact that I'm in it, although I am in it. I, have, I think I have to declare that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, But go see it. It's brilliant. And know that all proceeds raised from people buying tickets to go see it. Um, Blue has partnered with an Australian group called Cool Australia and all of the footage and a ver- various other educational tools. Um, there was something like 12 teachers worked along with the producers of the film for a year to create entire curricula for uh, grades. I think it was grade three through grade 12. And those curricula are now completely developed and fully available and currently being integrated into the Australian national curriculum to teach kids about ocean health and plastics and overfishing and all of these kinds of things. So, the film goes beyond just the film. It's got all of these other mechanisms kind of in behind it. And by going to see the film, you allow those things to kind of be supported and to continue into the future. And so as a star of the screen, you, you would have, I guess, you've heard of uh, the Erdos number, which kind of measures how, how many papers you are from Paul Erdos. It's a mathemat- mathematical thing. I don't know if you are, if it's big in the marine biology world, but you also have a Bacon number, which connects you to Kevin Bacon. So you're one of those yeah. rare scientists that have an Erdos Bacon number. <laughs> Do I really? How many? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up for you. Um, so it's like, you know, how many um, degrees of separation you are from Kevin Bacon. And if you've been on the big screen, there was probably somebody who worked on that film that worked on something with someone who worked with Kevin Bacon. <laughs> That's too funny. No one in all of my interviews over the, the years, no one has ever said that. That's brilliant. I love it. 
<laughs> I grew up watching Kevin Bacon on the big screen, so that actually is quite funny. <laughs> uh, I, I personally don't have one unless you count, you know, being in my high school musical or something, but <laughs> I don't think that counts. Yeah. So, no, well done. Congratulations. That was Dr. Jennifer Lavers. And if you're interested in chasing up any of the things that you heard about today, or to check out Jennifer's research or her outreach programs, have a look at our website, www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And from there, you'll find a whole bunch of links to Jennifer's work and to social media, all sorts of things. Thanks very much for having me. My name's Mark West. I'll catch you on the next episode of The Pod.